This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we journey from the Crusades and head toward the Protestant Reformation. But on the way, it is good to recognize some names that are often underappreciated. They truly paved the way for some of the formative changes coming to Christendom. That's right. We got our typical timeline down in the show notes for you. If you would like a visual aid to help you along your journey. We got one there. It's getting a little bit busier now. Brent, the last few timelines have been, I haven't wanted to point it out, but they've been, they've, they've illumined my lack of knowledge. <laughs> well, yes. And, you know, a general, as we get closer to the modern age, we're going to have more information. That's correct. We're going to start covering smaller periods of time. Absolutely. And I don't mean us. I mean, globally, like yeah. we have, we just have so much more history, written history, recorded Absolutely. Um, knowledge. Speaking of globally, it's worth noting here because we have listeners now kind of like all over the globe. On our journey through session five, I am not going to try to be comprehensive. And and I'm. this was just designed years ago. My audience wasn't a global audience. And I need you to know how just inadequate my international awareness, my my prowess, my willing to engage. I am quite a prude when it comes to being comfortable. And I lead these trips to Israel and Turkey, and it gives people the impression that I'm this real adventurer, this real biblical crocodile Dundee character. <laughs> uh, yes. But uh, just not the case for me. I There's so much I don't know. And I, I am speaking about, and I am speaking from, and I am largely speaking to my Western American evangelical mostly context. And I just want to say that up front, and I'll probably say it again as we get closer to the end here, because at some point, all these different streams of history are going to start to diverge. They're going to go different places. Um, Even at our East-West schism in the last couple episodes, we've lost some of our listeners, and they would have their own history to tell. And I just want to apologize for that. I, I would not even begin to know how to speak about other periods of history. So I'm hoping that maybe there will be some similarities and some things that God is still going to do and teach us through this discussion. But um, we're largely going to follow a stream of history that brings us to where I sit today. Um, and and when when you need another discussion, please create your own podcast and your own discussion and, and add it to this journey so that you have something that's more applicable and appropriate to who you are and where you are from. All right. Good disclaimer there. We'll we'll do that again. But uh, Christendom emerges from the period of the Crusades in horrible shape. (laughs) And we do mean that. Uh, uh, Christendom is completely beaten up. It is completely broken. Uh, Having spent everything they had on war, and like literally they spent like every last dollar (laughs) on war and conquest, they now turn their sights toward needing to rebuild. And Brent, you pointed this out. The Crusades were largely what? Not so successful. Yeah. Did uh, not accomplish what they sought to do. Yeah. And and even what they sought to do would be up for debate. Like, what were the objectives of the Crusades? And and I suggested that there was a whole lot more behind the scenes, however intentional that was or unintentional. But, you know, if the objectives were to spread, you know, to spread Christendom, to spread faith, to make more believers, to own certain plots of ground. Like, uh, the Crusades were not effective on, by any measuring stick. 
Um, so, so having been ineffective in slaughtering people for three or four centuries, very effective and successful in killing people. Right, uh, right. Not so successful in basically anything else. Yeah, right. Very successful in all the ways you wouldn't want to be, and not much success in the ways that God would call us to be. Uh, so now they have to turn their sights towards rebuilding this empire that they've literally torn apart. In order to do this, they're going to need to find a way to get what, Brent? If you're going to rebuild, you're going to have to get... Need some sweet, sweet moolah. You're going to need some cash. Well, in a world that is largely illiterate... I don't want to oversimplify. The danger here is I'm going to over... I'm going to way oversimplify. <laughs> Let me just say that up front. Um, there's definitely a whole lot more going on. It's super complex. It's super nuanced. Not everybody is super evil. I get it. I get it. I get it. But let me let me paint with some very broad strokes here. Imagine having a paintbrush uh, wide enough to cover the front of your house in one stroke. Yeah, there we go. Beautiful <laughs> illustration. You got it. Uh, in a world that is largely illiterate, where the educated are priests and, and leadership, uh, and they're studying the text that is written in an archaic foreign language uh, that's very difficult to understand. It becomes simple to manipulate the truth that the masses depend on you. They depend on you to communicate. With this, with a little shaping here, a little gloss there, the narrative of God quickly becomes something that can enslave people in a system of fear, guilt, and control. I'm super glad we grew out of this, Brent Billings. He's smiling because he understands what I'm getting at. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, at, right. At, its, at its best, you had priests and church leadership who were maintaining a commitment to sound doctrine, modeling a self-sacrificial life, and instilling a message of hope into people who needed the gospel so badly. But at its worst, and well, and let's not go past that too far. Like there's, right? there's always a remnant. Absolutely, there's always a remnant. Absolutely, yeah, but in you. general, yeah, yeah. Uh, in general, for, yeah, it's not so good. Yeah, thank you for stopping me there, making that point. At at its worst, however, we saw the rise of the age of indulgences. While the entire conversation is incredibly complex and usually oversimplified, as I am about ready to do for the sake of our episode, the general understanding of the problem is relatively accurate. As parishioners came for their typical interaction with the sacraments, the church leveraged this need to help control the general populace. To understand this conversation, one needs to have a basic understanding of the sacraments. And to the Orthodox faith of the Middle Ages, people believed you could, uh, you would interact with the many different practices of the church in order to experience the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. Now, I've worked hard to word that statement the way that I have, so I'm going to read that again. And pr- again, probably if, I have, if we have Catholic listeners and whatnot, they're going to probably want to alter that statement a million times till Sunday. To the Orthodox faith of the Middle Ages— People believed that you would interact with the many different practices of the church in order to experience the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. You might remember the liturgy that we spoke of. Who was responsible for creating the liturgy, Brent? Gregory. Gregory. Talked about that a few episodes ago. Because of that liturgy, the the church had identified seven sacraments to serve as corporate practices for experiencing the dispensation of grace. The dispensing of grace. For these early thinkers, there is nothing magical about the sacrament itself other than its service as a conduit to receive the grace of God in your life. I'm going to say that again. For these early thinkers, there is nothing magical about the sacrament itself 
only its service as a conduit to receive the grace of God in your life. Things like baptism, the Eucharist, confession, marriage, these were all sacraments that allowed the grace of God to flow into your daily experience. You can imagine, as people came to engage these sacraments and anticipate the reception of God's grace in their lives, and by the way, they did not see these as like, they saw grace as something that both saved you and something that you received all the time, continually in your life. So by saying that there are conduits to receive God's grace, we are not saying that these are ways that you are saved in Catholic thought, in Christian thought. These aren't ways that you were saved. You you got saved by, you know, giving your life to Jesus, saved by, and we, we can't at this point in history use Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther language, but you also needed to experience God's grace in your life daily. So you can imagine that as people came to engage these, they wanted to receive God's, they had been saved, but they want to receive, they want to experience God's grace in their lives daily, every day as they walk. It's a short leap from that point from the church to start manipulating the system for their ends. Remember, they need some of that sweet, sweet cash you were talking about earlier. So at some of its worst moments, remember, there were also some really great moments and there's always a remnant. But at some of its worst moments, the church was often uh, offering forgiveness at a monetary price. Come to the confession and absolve your sins by going through the appropriate motions and a monetary offering and the appropriate gift. In short, we're seeing a rabid abuse of church leadership and priesthood. But not all the educated were prepared to turn a blind eye to these abuses. Brent, you said there's always a what? Always a remnant. Always a remnant. It's not that every single member, there was a corrupt priesthood back in session three, but there was a group of people that we know as the Essenes. The Essenes that said that we're going to step out of that corruption. Well, the same went, was true here at this point in history. They're not all going to turn a blind eye to these abuses. The 14th and 15th centuries are littered with names of people who stood up against this corruption and fought to reveal the gospel as it ought to be seen. Two popular names that we'll use for our episode today. There are others, by the way, but we'll go over two today. Uh, in the world of scholasticism, at least at least with people that had the scholastic privilege. Like we might have different privileges today, but in their world, it was a scholastic privilege. And not everybody who had that privilege was going to use it for their own self-indulgence and their own self-preservation. There were some people that were going to use this privilege for self-sacrificial love, which seems to fit at least a little bit more the narrative that we've looked at for four sessions prior to this. Two names we'll look at are Wycliffe and Huss. Wycliffe and Huss. Both of them Johns, by the way. John Wycliffe. We, a lot of people know Wycliffe. There's a whole organization, Wycliffe Translators. Wycliffe was known for consistently attacking the imperial privilege of the church at large. He hated the separation between the clergy and the lay people and thought the gap should be dissolved. While he railed against the pomp of the high church system, he also argued that the text should not be held captive in an ancient language. He wanted the scriptures to be accessible for all and thought they should be translated into the common vernacular for people to understand in their services. In a lot of ways, Wycliffe paved the way for the Reformation. So the second name here is John Hus. Is that how we determine to say it, Brent? Hus? I think I said Hus earlier, but Hus is what we're Hus. looking at. 
Hus. All right, John Hus, sometimes referred to as a true father of the Reformation. It is hard to see Hus apart from the work of Wycliffe. Hus led an informal resistance to the papacy and was eventually executed for leading what history knows as the Bohemian Revolt. And you can, if you want to know anything about any of these things or people, you can find it on Wikipedia. Lots of stuff out there. There were two successful regional crusades that were fought against the reigning papacy. And while his methods may be subject, I'm not sure if I would necessarily use his methods. He would have fit with which group more? Like we talked about Essenes already. Brent, which group would uh, Hus have fit with? The Zealots. The Zealots. He used imperial methods to fight the empire itself. I'm not sure if I agree with those methods. I'm not sure if I would be a zealot, but he... You're you're not sure. I'm not not sure. (laughs) Uh, I want to hold that loosely. I want to be... Yeah. Jesus called zealots. I'm good. Whatever. Um, I I don't know if I like the methods, but definitely laid the groundwork for what we're going to know in their next episode as the Protestant Reformation. Part of the issue in this period of Catholic history was the geopolitical context with a new sense of what I call medieval nationalism. Medieval nationalism. The power structures in the world were shifting entirely. No longer was the world ruled by one giant papacy, as Christendom tried to figure out how to hold on to their outdated system of governance, the world changed around them. People were seeing their allegiance aligned more with the powers of the state and country than they were with a foreign church. People associated being French or being German as a more immediate identification they did with being Catholic. And maybe Catholic, French Catholic or German Catholic. Absolutely. But but the nationality comes first. Absolutely. And they started to have a more tribal identity around their nation. So this made it easier and easier to reject foreign papacy and rule. The papacy of Avignon, did I say that correctly, Brent? I think so. All right. Uh, The papacy of Avignon actually shifted the seat of power away from Rome and into France for a period of seven popes. Seven popes leading to what would later be called the Western Schism. The Western Schism. We had the East-West Schism, but then the Western world itself had a schism. Uh, The Western Church was split between Western and Eastern Europe. The church continued to suffer from divisions and schisms. In light of the many abuses of religious power, the Protestant Reformation was simply waiting for good leaders. How good, quote-unquote, good these leaders were is left to historical debate. I will leave my personal opinions out of it, or at least I'm going to try to... Uh, So much material has been written about the Reformation, and I encourage you to do your own study. Needless to say, people like Martin Luther, Zwingli, John Calvin, Zwingli's first name, Ulrich. Did I say that correct? Ulrich? I think so. Ulrich? Sure. Zwingli? Martin Luther, Ulrich, Zwingli. John Calvin led Reformations away from the Catholic Church in their respective lands, each with their own nuances to their understanding of theology. Now, at this point, we begin to split over the smallest of nuances. No longer held together by a common hierarchy of papal leadership, we were free to disagree over the smallest details, often fueled by our nationalistic identifications. However, each national identity will get a denominational affiliation. Germans would be Lutheran. The French might be Calvinistic reformers. And the Swiss would follow Swingley. Their many opinions splintered the faith of Christendom, 
And we don't have time for that full conversation here in this episode. We actually do have time, but I don't want to be dragging us off course. Well, if we did the full conversation, we did not have time. This is absolutely correct. The invention of the printing press allowed the widespread distribution of the text and the language of the common people. Remember Wycliffe and his commitment to... Oh, man. Don't even get me started on Bible translations. This is where I start to really geek out. All right. I like that. uh, We're probably going to have to find some outlet for me to talk about this because I love the topic. Oh, man. I don't know where that's going to fit, but wherever it needs to fit, you you just... Send it into whatever conversation well, the, we're the, having. This is the period of history where it happens. Like Wycliffe is doing his translating, um, but he's translating from Latin. And then this guy Erasmus comes along in the early 1500s. He's like, no, we should really have the original language. So he starts assembling it in Greek. Then William Tyndale says, well, I'm going to translate from that Greek into English. And that's kind of the lineage of the King James Bible. And there's just, you know, there's a lot of work going on. A lot of Absolutely. Like Luther translated from Latin into German so that his German church could read the Bible in their own language. Yep. Like all of this is happening. Latin has not been the common spoken language for a very long time at this point, uh, but it has been the biblical language for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And translation seems to happen in waves. And so you're talking about this very first wave of very important translation work. And then and then there's some time and there's another wave of of they're not ancient translations i don't know what we would call it pre-modern and then and then you have our last wave of more modern translations that we are more familiar with um in, in the last hundred years last century or so and so and yeah. as, as we were talking about before like because we don't have this uh, papal authority that says this is the way it is right like and and the translations reflect that like Right. Each denomination has their own preferred translation, basically. The more recent practice of having bodies of scholars from different denominations and backgrounds coming together to form a unified translation is pretty weird. Yeah, and, and even today, it's really not even so today. There are some translations that maybe do a better job with that. I'm a personal fan of the NIV. It's what we use throughout most of our podcast here. People are always emailing me that now that we've gotten all the way to the end of session five, you finally get your answer. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the NIV because I think they've done one of the best jobs of that, personally. You can disagree with that. The ESV is wonderful, um, and you have your own critiques of the ESV, Brent, but it's it's done largely from a Reformed perspective. It, it definitely has a Reformed influence. Um, the Holman Christian Standard, now known as just the Christian Standard Bible, comes from a very Baptist perspective, and so it influences the translation. So those are, those are tricky things for me to... Uh, appreciate and not overly critique. So that's why I've always been a fan of kind of the NIV, um, just as because of that point you make there. But yeah, it all starts here. This is really key. It's a key moment of history. So the invention of that printing press allowed the widespread distribution of the text in the language of the common person. The Reformation changed the face of education and cinched up the gap between the educated and the uneducated. I'm not going to say it did it perfectly, but it did cinch up the gap significantly. Especially in reference to theology, both orthodoxy and ortho what, Brent? Orthopraxy. Orthopraxy. Both orthodoxy and orthopraxy became a much larger work of the whole body, the ministry of all believers, Luther would talk about, the priesthood of all believers. And this might seem like a, uh, while this might seem like an unbelievable amount of change for the world to endure, the change is only beginning. That is where we'll cap our conversation for today and pick up in the next period of history next week. All right. Sounds good. 
Very enjoyable conversation, if I do say so myself. Yeah, you got to get in on some translation work on that one. Yeah, well, we'll uh, uh, you know, potential future conversation to be had there because uh, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens there. Well, it's of... taken you 198 episodes to just have something you were just gonna just like. <laughs> Bam! Just land here on the Bayma podcast. I know. Back when I didn't know anything about uh, cultural context, this is the kind of crap that I studied. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, if you have any questions, uh, go to baymaudeception.com. You can get in touch with us there. So, thanks for joining us on the Bayma podcast today. We will talk to you again soon.